Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, December 3rd, uh, 2023. Uh, We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll feature dispatches uh, on the resumption of fighting in the Gaza Strip since the failure to extend the truce uh, on Friday morning. Solidarity efforts with Palestine continues in Europe and internationally. Somalia has welcomed the lifting of the arms ban, and Tanzania's hydroelectric system is being upgraded. In the second hour, we look at the cost of the Israeli Defense Forces' war on Gaza. Finally, we continue our re-examination of some of the theories surrounding the assassination of President John F. Kennedy some 60 years ago. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude in the North African state of Egypt bordering uh, the Gaza Strip uh, with the Um Kaltum Orchestra. Uh, this is a opera entitled Aga Eminen Nasmat El Ganoub. Let's listen in.
Yeah.
music of uh, the Um Kaltum Orchestra, uh, the North African Egyptian classical music. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, December the 3rd, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. The government media office in Gaza says 316 Palestinians were killed in just 24 hours, with hundreds still stuck under the rubble. At least 15,523 Palestinians were killed in Gaza since Israel's aggression on the Strip started on October 7th, the health ministry in Gaza revealed. 70% of those killed are women and children, according to the health ministry spokesperson Ashraf al-Qudra. Over 41,000 people have been wounded by the strikes. Al-Qudra reported that in recent hours, 316 Palestinians were killed and another 664 have been wounded and rushed to devastated hospitals for care. He warned that many others are still under the rubble. This comes as the government media office in Gaza said the Israeli occupation committed 23 massacres in just 24 hours in which 316 Palestinians were killed, with hundreds still stuck under the rubble. An official from the Gaza government media office informed al-Mahadin earlier today that al-Shujai neighborhood massacre carried out by the Israeli occupation forces was one of the most horrific incidents, with more than 500 casualties reported. Hospitals in southern Gaza have devolved into a state of chaos as medics are fatigued after eight weeks of heavy bombardment. Fuel stocks are nearly depleted due to the Israeli siege, forcing physicians to select when and where to use generators throughout their facilities. And in other news, uh, protesters in Berlin continue to criticize Germany's complicity in the crimes by providing military support for Israel and chant, Israel bombs, Germany pays. Now, hundreds protested in Berlin uh, yesterday to demand an end to the Israeli genocide of Palestinians. Demonstrators brandished placards expressing outrage at Israel's daily airstrikes and demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, according to the Anadolu news agency. Protesters criticized Germany's complicity in the crimes by providing military support for Israel and chanted, Israel's bombs, Germany pays, viva Palestine, and free, free Palestine. Pro-Palestine rallies have been prohibited in parts of Germany in recent weeks after authorities claimed they were anti-Semitic, and schools in Berlin have been given permission to ban the traditional Palestinian scarf, the uh, kafia, something activist groups are calling a restriction on free expression. Last month, uh, Binal Fur Altugli Photography, a contemporary photo exhibition that was due to be held in the German cities of Mannheim, Ludwigsfeld, and Heidelberg in March of 2024, was canceled after Bangladeshi curator Shahidul Alam posted content in support of Gaza and Palestine amid the Israeli genocide. The organizers of the exhibition have reportedly discussed the sensitivity of the situation, urging Alam to retract his statements due to Germany's Nazi past 
and a claim of responsibility to ensure the security of Israel. Alam, on the other hand, continued sharing similar pro-Palestinian sentiment and contact. Also late last month, a poll conducted in the Kantar Public Research Group for the Kerberg Foundation revealed that more than half of Germans believe their country should ex- exercise greater restraint when reaching two international crises. The survey showed that 54% of Germans expressed this view, marking a 2% point increase compared to answers received to the same question last year. And you're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In the Horn of Africa, Somalia has welcomed the decision of the United Nations Security Council to lift the arms embargo, which was imposed 31 years ago, saying it will enable the country to tackle emerging security threats. In separate statements, President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed and Prime Minister Hamza Abdi Bade said the UN Security Council move will support Somalia's efforts in maintaining peace, fostering stability, and promoting economic development. President Mohammed said the decision grants Somalis the freedom to purchase weapons and request lethal arsenal from countries that support Somalia. Somalia can now access weapons, buy them from other countries, and borrow weapons from our friends so that we can defeat the terrorist group. That's according uh, to the president. He said this in a televised speech that was delivered on Friday evening. The president lauded the government's efforts in securing this breakthrough, emphasizing his role in strengthening the country's defense capabilities and advancing the fight against terrorism. He said the government will make sure that it controls and manages the flow of weapons, aiming to reduce misuse and illegal purchase of weapons by individuals rather than the government. The UN Security Council on Friday adopted two separate resolutions to renew the sanctions regime on the Somali-based al-Shabaab and to lift the arms embargo on the Somalian government, a crucial step towards forward uh, in the country's efforts to stabilize and strengthen its security forces. Resolution 2713 decides to renew till December the 15th of 2024 the sanctions regime on al-Shabaab, including the authorization for maritime interdiction to enforce the embargo on illicit arms imports, the charcoal export ban, and the improvised explosive device components ban. Resolution 2713 also decides to renew the mandate of the panel of experts that assist the sanctions committee till January the 15th of 2025. Resolution 114 votes in favor out of the 15 Security Council members, France abstained. And uh, finally, in the East African state of Tanzania, the power utility company yesterday announced that the connection of electricity from Mega Julius Nereri hydropower project to the national grid began actually on Friday. The Tanzania Electric Supply Company Limited, Tanesco, a government-owned company, said in a statement on Saturday yesterday that trial runs will follow the connection of power to the national grid. Connections of power to the national grid is a milestone to the country's electricity generation, said the statement. The connection of electricity to the national grid is one of the completion stages in the construction of the dam, which will help reduce and eventually eliminate power rationing, said the statement about ongoing power rationing causing, caused by water decline in hydropower dams. 
the government of Tanzania in 2018 signed a joint construction contract with Arab contractors and El Sawidi from Egypt for the JNHPP, which has installed capacity of 2,115 megawatts. The project is scheduled to be finished in January of 2024. Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Energy, Doto Biteko, said in September that construction of the mega hydropower project has reached 91.7%. He said the 6.6 trillion Tanzanian shillings, about 3 billion U.S. dollars project, once operational, will address the current power shortage facing the country. With that, we're going to conclude this edition of the Pan-African Journal, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches and hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website, and that's at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back.
the uh, group uh, Brownstone uh, with the track entitled Grapevine, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, December 3rd, 2023, and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to return uh, to developments uh, taking place in Palestine. We want to look at who actually pays the cost uh, of uh, this drastic and enormous and monumental military assault on the Palestinian people that takes place not just since uh, October 7th, but now for some 75 years. Let's listen to this report. Adrian Finnegan, and this is Counting the Cost on Elta Zero, your weekly look at the world of business and economics. This week, nothing to return to. Israel's war on Gaza has wiped out entire neighborhoods and reduced businesses to rubble. So who compensates Palestinians for the destruction? Also this week, enshrined in Germany's constitution, the so-called debt break has sparked a budget crisis. Calls are growing for borrowing limits to be relaxed. Plus... China and Saudi Arabia agree on their first currency swap, while many nations are increasingly moving away from the U.S. dollar to settle trade. Israel's relentless bombardment of Gaza has killed and injured thousands of Palestinians. The human cost is innumerable. The toll on infrastructure is massive. Put simply, absolute destruction and a lack of basic requirements to sustain life. Entire neighborhoods, homes, schools, hospitals, churches and mosques have all been targeted. Whoever runs Gaza after the war ends will have to rebuild the strip and create a functioning economy. While many Palestinians who've managed to see what remains of their homes during a brief lull in attacks were shocked at the scale of the damage. As you can see, thousands of residential units were destroyed, the same with other residential complexes in the north. Where to go? Where to sleep? This was my house, and now my family and I are homeless. Many are still buried under the debris. I cannot even pick some of my clothes from under the rubble to put on my back. However, we are not leaving. We're holding our ground. Even if I live in a tent, I will not abandon my homeland. My memories. My home is all my memories. I would never let it go. I lived for 23 years here. I will stay in it even if only a small part of it remains. It's a massive shock. It took me a lifetime to build this house for me and my brothers. And just like that, I'm back to square one. We are a family of four, and our house is made up of four floors. The ground floor is a commercial shop. My brother lives with his family in the first floor, while the other brother on the second. My family and I live on the fourth floor. We're now sitting in what was once the kitchen. That was the fridge and that the oven. This is the only area where we could sit. The rest is a total wreck. Well, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Adequate Housing, Balakrishnan Rajagopal, has denounced Israel's widespread bombing of homes and infrastructure in Gaza. In a recent report, he said, carrying out hostilities with the knowledge that they will systematically destroy and damage civilian housing and infrastructure, rendering an entire city, such as Gaza City, uninhabitable for civilians, is a war crime. Multiple sources have released figures on the extent of damage to infrastructure. Satellite analysis by two researchers 
at the CUNY Graduate Center and Oregon State University shows that nearly half of all buildings across northern Gaza have been damaged or destroyed. The UN says that nearly 45,000 housing units have been demolished. Out of the Strip's 36 hospitals, 28 are no longer functioning. 279 educational facilities have been affected, depriving more than 625,000 students of the basic right to education. Bakeries and mills in the northern part of the Strip have been brought to a standstill due to structural damage and the lack of fuel and flour. Water facilities across Gaza have also been targeted. Well, the latest conflict is estimated to have cost much more than any of the four previous wars on Gaza. The three-week war that began in December 2008 and ended in January 2009 caused destruction amounting to $2 billion. That's according to the World Bank. Hamas says the eight days of Israeli attacks in 2012 cost Gaza $1.2 billion. Nearly $6 billion was estimated to be the cost of rebuilding Gaza after the 2014 war, and the damage and economic losses from the Israeli attack in 2021 amounted to more than half a billion dollars. Western countries have considered using frozen Russian assets to rebuild Ukraine. Last year, Poland demanded more than $1 trillion in World War II reparations from Germany. Also in 2022, Iraq completed the payment of more than $52 billion in compensation for damage caused by its 1990 invasion of Kuwait. So, who pays for the destruction in Gaza? And how much? Joining us now is uh, Tama Kamut. Tama is an assistant professor in public policy and administration at the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies. Good to have you with us on, the, on counting the cost. Um, is Gaza even going to be habitable? after all of this, given the scale of the destruction that we've just outlined? Um, uh, yes, there is a chance it would be uh, habitable if an urgent early recovery and, and uh, reconstruction plan is initiated immediately after the end of this war. Hmm. So there, there, is still, there is a chance, of course. I mean, I mean Gazans have nowhere to go. So uh, there is no plan B for Gazans. So we have to believe that it has to be uh, habitable and, and, and a normal place like any other place in the world. And this depends on the international community as well to create normal, conducive uh, social economic conditions for Gazans to stay in Gaza. And, this, and, this, and, 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 and by default, this is related on to how will they uh, plan and implement the reconstruction plan of Gaza after this war ends. Who, who makes those plans? How much is it, are those plans going to cost? Is the rebuilding going to cost? And who pays? So just to give uh, the viewers a perspective, like, you know, the, 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 in 2009, the first reconstruction uh, uh, operation, there were donors, uh, after the Shalit war in Gaza, donors pledged uh, nearly $5 billion. In 2012, uh, cast-led operation, there was 3.2 pledges as well. So given the size, the sheer size of construction now, we are literally talking about something similar to I would, I would call it a new Marshall Plan for, for Gaza. Hmm. This might exceed 30 billion plus, you know? So it's huge amounts of money. Uh, of course, Palestinians will not pay. If, if we live in a fair and ethical world, the Israelis have to pay because they cause this, this destruction. And I still, they should not, I, I, and I believe that there should be accountability when it comes to this. Because most of the destruction that happened in Gaza, this is private ownership and also 
uh, uh, aid and donations that came to support the two-state solution since the beginning of also 1994. So we're talking about building hospitals, government premises, ministries, uh, civil infrastructure, name it. Mainly these are donors' money. And when I say donors, I say Western donors, Arab donors, and international donors. But Western donors, especially uh, the Europeans, the EU, they use one of the largest donors to the Palestinian uh, Authority, uh, followed by, I mean, the Americans, Japan, uh, then Arab donors, you know, the, the, the Gulf countries, you know, uh, Islamic countries. Uh, so this is tax money. When it comes to Western countries, this is tax money. This is tax money being wasted because of Israel's actions. And Israel had, has no limits when it comes to this because the... the, the the subject or the issue of protecting aid dividends, which is aid, you know, that should contribute to peace, should be brought into, uh, to, to be discussed on the table by the donors and Israelis. I mean, because there is donors fatigue now. Many donors now, they're tired from seeing their money being wasted in every eruption of conflict or a circle of violence in, the, in, in, in occupied Palestine. So there has to be a discussion on this now. I mean, especially in the future of Gaza after this war ends. Donors should be very blunt about it and say, we will invest, we will of course support Palestinians to recover, uh, but there has to be conditions this time. It's not going to be free aid, especially to the Israelis. Mm. Is Israel going to be forced to pay, though? I mean, who, who, who's going who's to force well, Israel to pay if it's decided that Israel, Israel should, should be paying? Well, uh, here we talk about the just, the, the just war and a just international system. I mean, if, the, if Iraq had to pay for Kuwait, as mm. you've mentioned. Exactly. And if, if, if the idea of uh, see, using seized Russian assets frozen Russian assets to, also re to, build, to rebuild Ukraine, then we have a precedent that it should continue this way, you know, correct? Mm -hmm. But it needs international will. Are Western countries, mainly Western countries, ready to use this on Israel or not? I, I'm not sure, to be honest. But I, I, if, if we live in a just world, it should happen. Israel should be accountable, not only for the destruction, also for human losses. Yeah. All these civilians who have lost their wives, they, ha they have to be compensated for that. Yeah. I, I was going to ask you about, you talked about personal ownership as well. A lot, mm -hmm. of, the, a lot of the property that's been, that's been destroyed was, was personally owned, privately owned. Yes, it, it, yes. This is not yes. businesses or, or organizations. Yes. I mean, even if they could have got insurance in, in, in Gaza, it wouldn't have paid out because this is an act of war. No. So surely people need to be compensated for their individual losses, not just of, of, of property, but for, for lives lost as yes, well. Yes, exactly, exactly. I mean, there's for, just, I mean, just for your viewers to know, there's no insurance in Gaza. I mean, insurance is not a scheme implemented in Gaza or Gazans know about, so same like in other countries in the world. So these are people, I mean, who psychologically they have to suffer for the, the loss of their loved ones, their houses, their properties, their means of income. Uh, so, so yes, we, we, so I mean, I mean, I mean, it's hard to me even to talk about financially compensation people who have lost their loved ones. I mean, money will not bring the, 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 the lost ones back to life, correct? I mean, but at least that's the least donors should do at least to, 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 to try to help them to get back to, the, to their life. Yeah. You know, so. and, and you talked about donors uh, footing the bill for some of the, of, of the reconstruction costs. But, but donors are, are not really going to be willing to, 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 invest, to put more money to, in, into Gaza if there's a danger of this happening again. So that there has to be a political solution alongside uh, a, a financial one. Yes, Adrian, and this is an excellent point. I mean, uh, yes, I mean, it, it would be another waste of resources and energy 
if, if, if money comes in a fragile context again. Now, it doesn't mean that, that donors should stop intervening. Now, I'm all in. I'm all in for humanitarian aid to kick in now and, to be, and even to be upscaled, humanitarian aid, hmm. which is necessary to keep people alive. It's water, food, shelter, clothes, name it, I mean. So this is a must. You cannot leave people alone in this situation. Once this war is over, and it, again, and this is a big question because we don't know, everyone is talking about a, a future arrangements to, this, to govern Gaza or Gaza after the war. Mm. We don't know what's going to happen. What's the political outcome of this war? Meaning if Hamas is still going to be in power or not, it will step down and leave a, a, another entity, be it a technocrat government or a government run by the, be, the, by the Palestinian Authority, rule Gaza. We don't know. I mean, there are so many scenarios that are being discussed. But, 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 but we don't know which scenario will be the feasible one, the most feasible one, because the war is not over yet. Mm, yeah. So, however, if we reach to a scenario where, let's say, Hamas is not involved in governing Gaza, uh, this will be a relief for many Western donors who have uh, refused or who have been very shy of supporting Palestinians because of Hamas's control of, let's say, uh, governance, uh, governance uh, uh, institutions, correct? Uh, other donors, like let's say Arab donors, Muslim donors, they don't have any conditions. They support any project. So let's say if, 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 if a ministerial building is, is damaged now or was, was bombed during this war, some Arab donors will say, I can rebuild it. I have no problems, even if it's run by Hamas or will be run by Hamas. But then European donors, Western donors will say, no, 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 uh, this is a no-go for me. If I'm going to build this and it will be used by, officially by Hamas authorities, they will say, no, this is a no-go for me. I will just focus on humanitarian aid. Then we'll end up with the situation of fragmenting aid. And this will not go well for the Palestinians because after this war and the large scale of destruction, we need a systematic, comprehensive reconstruction plan that really tackles everything together. And it's not about just reconstructing what has been uh, bombed or damaged. It's about creating a sustainable future for Gaza, yeah. which means Israeli, Israeli uh, control measures, you know, blockades, mm. Uh, have to be also addressed. I mean, Israel cannot keep its control over the borders and also its control over, let's say, the reconstruction process by delaying materials, vetting materials, vetting beneficiaries of, 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 of aid, you know, because Israel has a famous history of doing this, delaying these yep, construction yep. materials. So we need a sense of normality. So it's about creating a sustainable future of Gaza, not just addressing the immediate outcomes of war, but also creating an environment for Gaza to be a normal country, a normal uh, strip like any other countries in the world. Yeah. That's, that's the issue. Salah, great to talk to you on County of the Cost. My pleasure. Many thanks indeed for being with us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Now, in Germany, rules limit how much debt the government can take on. The Constitution caps budget deficits at 0.35% of GDP, except in an extreme emergency. The so-called debt break was enacted in 2009 and was meant to stabilize public finances after the global financial crisis. But a strict interpretation of the rule by the nation's top court struck down billions of dollars in planned spending, sparking a budget crisis. Now calls are growing to abandon the borrowing limits, as Dominic Kane reports from Berlin. This is how Germany's finance ministry tries to explain its Schuldenbremse, or debt break. Governments can't borrow much more than a third of 1% of GDP each year, except in extreme emergencies. In theory, the mantra to ministers is pretty simple. Live within your means. In practice, it's proved anything but. It was Angela Merkel's government that enshrined the debt break into law during the credit crunch.
they felt it necessary to anchor something in the Constitution that put a debt break on spending to show responsibility. And of course, uh, Germany has always sort of wagged a finger at other countries in the EU that um, overspent um, you know, and broke EU debt rules. But now the finger is being wagged at the government here in Berlin because when Finance Minister Christian Lindner tried to use unspent money borrowed to fight COVID to finance climate change policies, the Supreme Court in Karlsruhe ruled that to be unconstitutional, leaving a multi-billion dollar hole in this year's budget and causing consternation in capital markets. German budgetary policy is a bit like satirical reality. It is important that we get back on reliable ground relatively quickly. It is unacceptable that one of the largest industrialized nations allows itself to pursue a budgetary policy that is constitutionally questionable. The political effect of the Karlsruhe ruling is also profound, something Olaf Scholz himself acknowledged in Parliament. This ruling creates a new reality for the federal government and for all current and future federal and state governments, a reality, however, that makes it more difficult to achieve important and widely shared goals for our country. Having improvised a solution for 2023, ministers are now having to work out next year's budget and the remote possibility of a $220 billion shortfall, which could mean the need to slash spending. There might be some cuts for benefits for the richer people in the society. There could be one way out and that would, um, then they would also have some smaller budget cuts for the poorer households in Germany. One analyst says behind closed doors, political leaders here believe the law should be made more suitable to today's realities. Many politicians agree that we need a change of that clause or an integration of this investment clause into the, into the debt uh, break. Or maybe even get rid of it and come up with something new which is more appropriate to solve uh, the, the challenges uh, we are facing in Germany. But to do that, the coalition government will need the help of the main opposition party in both houses of parliament. And so far, at least, its leader seems to favor new elections over new laws. Dominic Kane, for Counting the Cost, Berlin. China is Saudi Arabia's top trading partner and the largest buyer of its oil. Trade between the two nations amounted to more than $106 billion in 2022. Their relationship broadened last year. Leaders of the two nations signed a comprehensive strategic partnership during a visit by the Chinese leader Xi Jinping to Riyadh. The agreement, worth billions of dollars, included collaboration on infrastructure projects and technology and was hailed by Beijing as an epoch-making milestone in the development of Chinese-Arab relations. The two nations have recently moved to strengthen financial cooperation too. They've signed a local currency swap agreement worth nearly $7 billion dollars which will be valid for three years and could be extended. Several countries in the Middle East signed similar agreements with China over the past decade, including Qatar, the United Arab Emirates and Egypt. Beijing is believed to have the largest network of currency swaps with at least 40 countries. Well, currency swaps are agreements whereby central banks lend and borrow each other's currencies on a specified date. They then exchange the money back at an agreed interest rate. China's swaps are seen as part of its push to internationalize the yuan. Global central banks tapped a record amount of the Chinese currency in foreign exchange swaps lines in the first quarter of the year.
The outstanding balance of all foreign currency swaps was more than $15 billion by the end of March. That's according to the People's Bank of China. The jump came after a growing number of countries moved to settle their trade with China in local currencies in a bid to reduce their reliance on the U.S. dollar. The greenback remains the most traded currency by far, but its share of foreign reserves, the amount of dollars that countries put by for a rainy day, has declined to a record low of 58% last year. By comparison, China's yuan stands at less than 3%. The Chinese currency is still behind the euro, the Japanese yen, and the British pound. Well, joining us here in Doha is Wael Makarem, who is the financial market strategist lead at the global multi-asset brokerage group XNES. Good to have you with us, uh, Wael. Seven billion dollars is a huge amount to the likes of you and I and anyone watching, but in global economy terms, it's a relatively small amount. So how significant is this currency swap arrangement between China and Saudi Arabia? Uh, thank you, Adrian, for the invite first. Uh, actually, it's uh, quite good for a start since uh, we know like China is uh, looking forward to expand its presence in the, in the region. And, uh, of course, Saudi and the, uh, the economy recently has been performing well for the past few years since COVID. And there's a lot of plans for expansion and the vision for 2030. So definitely it's a good, uh, it's a good arrangement uh, going forward. As, as you mentioned, it's a three-year arrangement and could be even but, but who's it better for? You say that Saudi's economy is, is on the rise. China's at the moment is in, is in, a, is in a spot of bother, actually, isn't it? Actually, both of them would benefit mm. at a certain, uh, a certain threshold. So, for example, if we take into consideration for Saudi, the, the exports of Saudi Arabia towards China, they've been increasing at a pace of at least 13% for the past years, every year. And this is something very uh, uh, crucial to have such an arrangement. On the other side, China is looking to secure its energy uh, uh, supplies. And, and we know that China is a top importer for, for Saudi's energy. Uh, so so this, is definitely, this definitely plays a vital role in order to expand this relation. It started uh, with, it, 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 it could expand to other sectors. There's a lot of uh, opportunities. We know that Chinese economy is the second in the world. They're trying to expand. They're trying to recover as much from COVID. And of course, Saudi Arabia could find a lot of opportunities in the Chinese economy, while also through the vision of 2030, through the belt and uh, uh, the, the Belt and Road initiatives, also China is looking for more strong partners like Saudi Arabia. So what are the implications of this, this, this newfound relationship between the two countries for the rest of us? For the rest of actually, like having more of these two relationships, it's, uh, it's better for the global economy because this would uh, facilitate trade and also would make it easier to do more uh, investments and it, this, this would create opportunities. So of course, having uh, such, uh, such arrangements is good for the, for the economy. And if we see a lot of these arrangements happening, you mentioned that China has at least a network of 40 countries with these arrangements. So this is also facilitating business more and more. And this should play a good role in expanding the role of the Chinese economy in the global economy. And uh, this would in turn come back to good opportunities. And what does this currency swap arrangement and others like it with China mean for the US dollar, the greenback? Actually, a lot of, uh, a lot of Parties are uh, excited about what do we call de-dollarization, what we heard about it recently a lot on the media. However, we're still a little bit far away from that. If we just look at some figures, still the U.S. Uh, dollar reserves are around 59% of global reserves of central banks. Still, the trade uh, 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 funded by the dollar were around 84% this year. Yes, China's uh, such a re- arrangement that China is doing with a lot of uh, counterparties are increasing its role and in the internal, internationalization of the yuan. However, 
we're still very far away from just reaching where the dollar is at the moment. Okay, so Saudi Arabia expected to join the, the BRICS nations in, in, in early in 2024. What, what, what do you make of that? Is that a, a natural fit for Saudi Arabia? Actually, it's, uh, it, it's, a good, uh, it's a good step because BRICS are looking to, especially if we look at India and China, they're looking to secure their energy supplies, and this is one. Second, there's a lot of uh, chances for, uh, for, for these uh, parties to uh, contribute to, the perform, to better performance of each other. We know recently everyone is looking to expand their, their economy, especially post-COVID and all these. We're looking at China, we're looking at India. And even with the plans that Saudi Arabia has for Vision 2030, it needs such good uh, strategic members that could help in the prosperity of the kingdom's economy. Do you think we could ever see Saudi oil sold ex in, in yuan? Uh, it's a... Uh, like, like the, the Chinese were, uh, were asking for that. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned uh, the Chinese president was in, China, in, in Saudi Arabia last year, and he also stressed on that. However, it's still not that easy. This uh, currency swap agreement is starting for non-oil uh, trade. It could in the future turn into that, but going into that way, it needs a lot of uh, geopolitical uh, assessments. But could you ever see, see the day, in, is, it, is it in the distant future, will it ever happen, or the near future, where by a currency like the yuan would replace the dollar as the preferred international currency of, of, of last resort? It could happen, but not in the foreseeable future. It could take years and decades for, for a currency to replace the dollar because of, of many factors. However, yes, after the, the, the crisis that we've seen in Europe, uh, a lot of uh, countries are looking to reduce the reliance and dependency on the US dollar. And, and these initiatives, they are part of this uh, uh, unwinding of the dependency and reliance. However, just going into a, cu a currency that would replace the dollar at the moment and the foreseeable future, it's a bit hard. Well, it's been really good to talk to you and counter the cost. Same here. I, I think I understood all of that as well. <laughs> so yeah. Thanks for explaining it so well to us. Many thanks Pleasure. indeed. Pleasure. Thank you. And that's our show for this week. Get in touch with us uh, if you want to comment on anything that you've seen. You can tweet me on X. I'm at A Finnegan. Try to use the hashtag AJCTC when you do. Or you can drop us a line. Counting the cost at altazero.net is our email address. As always, there's plenty more for you online at altazero.com slash CTC. That takes you straight to our page. And there you'll find individual reports, links, and entire episodes for you to catch up on. That's it for this edition of Counting the Cost. I'm Adrian Finnegan in Doha. From the whole team here, thanks for being with us. The news on Al Jazeera is next. Welcome back, and uh, that was a report, uh, the first part of the report that dealt with the uh, costs of the war uh, waged uh, by uh, the Israeli Defense Forces against the Palestinians and, and the people in Gaza in particular. And uh, there were two other reports, one on Germany and one on China, Saudi uh, oil trade. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, December 3rd, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
of Candy Staten, a legendary uh, rhythm and blues uh, singer. Darling, you've all that I had. And right now we want to move into our last uh, extended segment, uh, looking back on the 60th anniversary of the assassination of the 35th president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, which uh, since November 22nd of 1963 has been shrouded in mystery uh, let's listen to this uh, interview from 1967 with William Turner. Uh, he discusses the Jim Garrison investigation, uh, which was launched uh, during that year uh, in New Orleans. Let's listen in. Jim DiEugenio is a veteran author and researcher, lately focusing on JFK's foreign policy. He's the author of Destiny Betrayed and Reclaiming Parkland. We're going to talk a little bit about this William Turner KPFA 1967 uh, interview. Jim, you had a chance to look it over. You want to tell us a little bit about William Turner? And Yeah, sure. B- Bill, Turner, Bill Turner was a longtime FBI agent. I think he worked in the FBI for something like 10 years. He then decided, well, there's a debate as to whether he stepped down or he was forced out. But he had some problems with some of the things that Hoover was doing. All right? And he took them public. And either way, uh, he was retired from the FBI after about 10 years. I believe it was in the late 50s, very early 60s, that he um, he stepped out from the FBI. He then began his journalistic career. He wrote both magazine articles and books. And almost all of his books, even today, are still pretty valuable. The, uh, the book he did, for example, on the Robert Kennedy assassination, co-authored with John Christian, was uh, is still one of the best books on the RFK assassination. Uh, the book he co-authored with Warren Hinkle, The Fish is Red, is another very good book on the, on the JFK case. He 
one of the main places where he wrote for was Ramparts Magazine, the legendary Ramparts Magazine, which under Warren Hinkle, the editorship of Warren Hinkle, was, in my opinion, and the opinion of very many other people, was the finest magazine ever published in the United States after World War II. There really hasn't been anything else that's even come close to the achievement of Ramparts under Warren Hinkle. And Bill did some very good articles. One of the articles he did was about the Minutemen organization. He had this extraordinary source for that magazine article who had uh, essentially defected from the Minutemen and given Bill a wealth of information about some very strange activities they were participating in, uh, especially in the South. And so when Garrison started his investigation in the JFK case, this was one of the angles he was exploring, you know, the, the militant right-wing angle. And so he got into contact with Bill after his article appeared in Ramparts, and he asked him to come down and have a brainstorm session with him. And so he did. And this is how Bill eventually became one of the deputies on Garrison's case. He And as you'll see in this, uh, in this interview, at this time, late 1967, he'd already spent about two weeks actually in the office. Most of the time, Bill stayed at his home in California, and Garrison then gave him assignments to do. All right, on the West Coast. Now, Bill ended up staying around all the way. In fact, I've seen memos by Bill as late as 1969 on the eve of the Clay Shaw trial. And he actually wrote a manuscript about Garrison, which he actually had a prospective buyer for. In fact, in, in this interview, you'll see the moderator mentions it, okay, called the Garrison case. But what happened is, you know, after the Clay Shaw trial failed, they mutually agreed to go ahead and withdraw the book. Now, Bill, if you ask me, Bill Turner's articles in Ramparts on Garrison were, in my opinion, the best articles written about Jim Garrison in the, uh, in the mainstream press. And remember, Ramparts had about 250,000 circulation at that time, which, which was quite a lot. And so a lot of people, in fact, they even put Garrison on the cover, right? Warren Hinkle had to fight off certain people in the Ramparts office who didn't want to go down this angle of the Kennedy assassination. But Hinkle thought that it was worthwhile because he had read the Warren Commission volumes. And he said he stopped reading it at about volume 14 because by then he had decided the thing was a joke. And the last thing that people in the Warren Commission wanted to find out was who killed Kennedy, all right? And so that's why he decided to go ahead and write about Garrison. And Bill wrote, if I remember correctly, three or four articles in, in Ramparts about Jim Garrison. And they were all quite valuable. And the moderator mentions one here, The Inquest, which I think was his first article, which, was, which is really quite good, even well worth reading today. And so Bill was, I guess you could say, back then, um, the only journalist in America who was actually writing, giving Garrison a fair shake in, you know, in the press. And like I said, Ramparts had a very good circulation of about 250,000 at its pinnacle. Now, Hal Verb was a researcher 
the other person being interviewed in the San Francisco area who had served, I believe, in the, uh, in the armed services and knew a lot about military intelligence. And Hal ended up being a, a pretty good researcher. He passed away a few years ago, unfortunately. You know, and uh, he ended up writing for some uh, Kennedy assassination journals like the third decade and the fourth decade. You know, very reputable guy. All right. And uh, they bring up some certain points in this interview, which I wasn't even aware of myself. I am one of the very few people, I mean, there's only about four of us in the whole country, who had access to what was left of Garrison's files because Jim Garrison's children let me uh, and a couple other people copy them while we were in New, while we were in New Orleans. Uh, this was in the, the late, actually the mid-90s. But Bill talks about some things in here which is, are not in those files, which I think you can deduce rather logically, and I've, I've maintained this for years and years and years, that what we have of Garrison's files today is, I would say, at the most, 60% of what, Jim Garrison actually had in his archive. The rest of it was stolen by CIA agents who were planted in his office. Uh, a lot of it was destroyed by Harry Connick, um, who succeeded him as DA and incinerated a lot of the stuff. And then there were several file cabinets that Garrison gave to a friend of his to store for him in his garage, and those ended up being stolen. And so it's a real shame that... We simply don't have anywhere near what really Garrison had discovered in, in, in New Orleans during his two-year-long investigation. But Bill brings up a couple of things that Garrison had. Like, for instance, in talking about Jack Ruby, he, he talks about how the police turned over a source for, for them that needed a job, and Ruby went ahead, gave him a certain amount of money, and told them to go to uh, Alexandria, Louisiana, check into the hotel, and somebody will contact you further. And so, if you go ahead and follow the conversation, you know, the guy who contacted him was Oswald. All right? Okay, that's in, well, that's in about halfway through the conversation. And then he also talks about a guy named Don Norton. Now, Don Norton has a little bit more exposure, that part of the story has a little bit more exposure. I actually saw a file on that. But he was a courier for the CIA. And uh, he said, one part of the story was that, you know, that he had been a courier for the CIA and that uh, he recalled Oswald as being one of the people involved in the CIA at that time. And he also recalled David Ferry as being one of the people that he would go ahead and, and get and bring money to from the CIA. So this you know so there are some things in here this Turner interview with and Hal Verb that are are pretty rare and it's much worth reading for those purposes. I am in the studio with William Turner, a staff writer of Ramparts magazine and author of a forthcoming book Police USA which will be published by Putnam uh, Invisible Witness, Bob's Merrill, The Garrison Case Award Books. Mr. Turner is a former FBI agent. 
he wrote the inquest in June Ramparts outlining uh, Garrison's case and the press versus Garrison in the September Ramparts. This is not Mr. Turner's first appearance in our studio. Uh, quite a number of years ago now, several years ago, Mr. Turner uh, appeared over this station when he was originally in the process of leaving the FBI and made us uh, no more popular with the authorities. Uh, and uh, so he's been a lot of places and done a lot of things since then. The second person we have with us is Mr. Harold Verb, uh, who has been uh, is a reporter for the Berkeley Barb and has also uh, been uh, doing some work at San Francisco State, uh, conducting a seminar, I believe, on the uh, assassination of President Kennedy and the Warren Commission report. Now, what we've asked these two to come and chat with us about is what's going on in New Orleans and uh, what role uh, Jim Garrison has played in this, uh, where it is now, and what uh, how they estimate its significance, its relevance. Is it more than simply a theory that Mr. Garrison is working with? Perhaps you could uh, bring us up to date on some of the facts, uh, Mr. Turner. Uh, I'd be glad to uh, talk about Jim Garrison's case. Uh, actually, Garrison first got into the assassination investigation the day after the assassination. Uh, on that Saturday, why he called a what he called a brainstorming session of his staff, and uh, they went over any possible New Orleans angles or. Uh, persons who were erratic enough to have been involved in a conspiracy. And at that time, they came up with the name of David William Ferry, who you recall uh, died this year on February 22nd uh, after he was became involved in Garrison's current investigation. Now, at that time, uh, Ferry had made a rather mysterious trip to the state of Texas, leaving the afternoon of the assassination. And uh, in that trip, he went first to Houston by car, uh, where he appeared at an ice skating rink. And uh, according to the owner now, uh, he stood by the telephone for several hours on that Saturday afternoon. Uh, he apparently received a call and then went to Galveston. Now, Garrison was waiting for him when he got back on Sunday to New Orleans and picked him up and turned him over to the FBI for interrogation because of the very suspicious nature of this trip. In other words, uh, Garrison thought it was a very curious trip by a curious man at a curious time. Uh, the FBI uh, released him, and uh, apparently the reason was that, number one, uh, Ferry had not uh, left on that trip until after, well after the assassination, say uh, five or six hours, and also because they determined that his uh, small airplane was not airworthy at the time and therefore he couldn't have uh, been in on an escape plan. Now there the matter rested and as Garrison puts it, uh, he said I had confidence in the competency of the FBI. Uh, he himself is a former agent of the FBI, he was in approximately a year and uh, interestingly enough he was in the same office uh, that I was in Seattle so it was not until last fall when he was riding a plane to New York with Senator Russell Long of Louisiana uh, that he his interest was renewed. 
apparently they were discussing uh, the various books that had come out, and Long, Senator Long made the statement that uh, he really believed that there was more to it than Oswald. And uh, they conversed on it. When Garrison got back to uh, New Orleans, he went into virtual seclusion, uh, poring over uh, the Warren Report and its volumes, and he quietly launched his inquiry. And on the basis of the initial returns in this inquiry, he became convinced that indeed there was an assassination plot and uh, that the assassination plot had at least one aspect in New Orleans. Uh, so that is how he got started on it, and uh, as you know, it's still going on. Well, in what form is it still going on? Uh, would one of you, uh, I mean, uh, how is he proceeding at this point, and where does he intend to, uh, is, it, is it just simply become a private investigation now? There's nobody up for trial at the moment, is Well, there? yes, there is. Uh, Clay Shaw is uh, scheduled for trial, but uh, let me put it this way, that um, Shaw was arrested uh, Oh, I, I believe it was the latter part of February, and uh, through uh, all kinds of legal maneuvering, uh, I'm, maneuvering is the word of the judge down there, not mine, uh, it's been postponed and held off, and a trial date has not yet been set. Uh, however, uh, Garrison stresses that he does not believe that Shaw is at the center of any web of conspiracy, that he is a peripheral participant in this. And therefore, he has uh, made a motion in open court uh, to speed up the trial of Shaw uh, so that he can sort of clear the decks with his own investigation. As it is, uh, he is held up with all these legal motions in the Shaw case. He does not have a greatly enlarged staff, uh, and they have their normal caseload, criminal caseload, to handle. And he also has been subjected to attacks uh, from Life magazine, which insinuates that he is somehow sympathetic to organized crime, which is uh, laughable because probably of all the district attorneys in the nation, he has done more to uh, clean up organized crime than anyone. Uh, by NBC, CBS, uh, the bulk of the national media, the mass media, and uh, therefore uh, he would like to be able to devote more time to the investigation. But he does have an investigation. He's got main files that are set up somewhat like the FBI's. He has a uh, an archivist to handle the garrison archives. He has men who are specializing in the Kennedy assassination investigation, and uh, I've spent a total of two weeks inside his office down there, and every day there's a, there's a new angle. Well, tell me, uh, inasmuch as there must be quite a few people who wish he would uh, dry up and blow away, um, can he, as prosecuting attorney, uh, just sit there and uh, utilize that much uh, taxpayer's money uh, to follow up on something simply because he believes in it? Is there any chance of or possibility of actual either legal or political pressure to make him stop this? There have been all kinds of pressures brought to bear. Uh, now, Garrison was carrying on his inquiry in secret. Uh, this, is, this is the best way, of course, uh, to carry on an inquiry, at least at its initial stages. Now, the state's item newspaper in New Orleans uh, checked the disbursements of his office and found that there were exorbitant, uh, what they considered exorbitant travel expenses. People were going to Miami, they were going to Chicago, San Francisco. 
And this is the way they got wind of what he was doing, and they broke it uh, in the paper. Well, uh, Garrison at that time, number one, there was a loud hue and cry that he was expending public funds on a wild goose chase. Now, he didn't want to come out and release all his evidence uh, to substantiate that it was not a wild goose chase. Uh, therefore, they formed a group, businessmen in New Orleans formed a group called Truth or Consequences Incorporated, which is privately financing the assassination investigation. They, they signed up to contribute so much a month, and this is what is really subsidizing his assassination investigation. But through the prosecuting attorney's office or separate from the prosecuting attorney's office? Uh, well, through the office. Through the office. Now, you mentioned pressures brought to bear... <laughs> Uh, you get in his office down there, and you almost feel like you're in a uh, in maybe a Russian embassy on U.S. soil, the way he's been treated. Uh, for one thing, there is an organization down there called the Metropolitan Crime Commission, an, an ex-FBI agent by the name of Aaron Cohen um, is the head of this. Now, of course, this is, again, a privately subsidized operation, and Mr. Cohen has to have organized crime around in order for himself to exist. And it seems that since Garrison's investigation has come up, Cohen has been inordinately active in, in trying to say that there's organized crime in, in the parish of Orleans. Uh, he's been called before the grand jury down there several times to try and specify what he means by this, and he's been unable to do so. Nevertheless, uh, there, there is one pressure point. Uh, as I mentioned, the national press is another pressure point. Um, Bobby Kennedy's emissary, Walter Sheridan, um, had, was down there from the inception of Garrison's investigation, and he has attempted, uh, there, are legal, there is a legal allegation that he has attempted public bribery in getting to Garrison's witnesses. Uh, it is alleged that Perry Russo, who was a key witness in the Shaw case, was offered some of money by Sheridan. Sheridan allegedly told him that we'll get you to California and they won't be able to extradite you from there, and various other uh, types of either intimidation or lures. It's, you know, they've been using the carrot and the stick down there. Yes, Hal. Yes, one of the things that uh, Bill has mentioned uh, are these different pressure points, and he's pointed out the press uh, nationally and uh, locally has not given the Garrison case a fair shake. Uh, we can speak about the local press here. I think the only fair shake that they've given Garrison is that uh, there is no news that is covered in local press here that uh, gives anything that he says to counter charges that are made against him. I'll specifically mention one. For example, when Life magazine said that Garrison had been connected with the mafia, and this was reported in the press, Garrison had made a, a, an instant reply to that, and he said, I don't even know Carlos Marcello, and that was the specific individual who Life magazine had tied him in with. I wouldn't even know him if he were sitting right here next to me. Now, this thing has never even appeared locally. I doubt if there are few people here in the Bay Area who even, or in the whole state for that matter, who even know about this remark. This is typical. Uh, NBC, CBS will present their program giving their version of what they say are both sides of the story, when in fact it is only one side. 
Yes, I believe you had something about uh, some TV coverage that you wanted to talk about. Would this be the time that you would like to go into that a little more fully? Yes. Um, there seems to have been what I would regard as a massive attempt to, if not obstruct the investigation, to at least put obstacles in the way of it that would prevent Garrison's case from really coming to court, or at least uh, having his say uh, with respect to what he has presented. Now, for example, CBS presented a four-part series late in the summer, I think it was the end of June, in which they m made references to uh, specifically to Garrison's case. And one of the things that um, they mentioned was the kind of attempts that were made by Garrison's office, this is allegedly what they said, to bribe and intimidate witnesses. And, for example, they pointed to a writer this is a quote from one of the transcripts that I have of the uh, four-part series. They said there was a writer for the Saturday Evening Post who said he had read transcripts of what went on at those sessions. Now, the fact is that there were never any such transcripts, and this writer um, had actually seen Scambra's notes. And what this writer was trying to show was that uh, this particular person had written a document or statements in which he had said that uh, a key witness in this probe, Perry, uh, Raymond Russo, had lied about what he had presented as evidence. The fact is that uh, this was never the case because there were, in fact, uh, memorandums that were prepared and that this writer actually was aware of the existence of these memorandums. Now, this did not get into the TV coverage. Well... Where would you like to go from here on this? What is Garrison's theory? I mean, what uh, you say that that the man Shaw, uh, Ferry, is dead. Uh, there seem to be an yeah. awful lot of dead people. Right. The, 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 the tabulation uh, goes on. Uh, yes. Uh, so Ferry's dead. Whatever it was, he was supposed to be doing. Now, what about Shaw? And what what is Garrison's overall? Uh, well, all right. In broad terms, it is this. And uh, I think that this will also explain the orchestrated attack on him. Uh, Garrison believes that Oswald, number one, was a CIA agent and that he probably had been trained at the Atsugi base in Japan when he was in the Marine Corps. This would have been back around 1957, 58. Uh, Atsugi reportedly is a U-2 installation. And in the uh, restricted documents, the still classified documents in the archives, is a very tantalizing one entitled uh, Oswald's Access to U-2 Information. Now, uh, necessarily, this means that when Oswald went to the Soviet Union, he was a, a CIA operative. And, of course, there's liberal evidence to, to back this up, most of it uh, suggestive rather than direct. But um, for one thing, when he came back, he told a fellow employee in Dallas where he's working in a photographic lab uh, about the disbursement of Soviet military forces, how they uh, did not intermingle their armored divisions with uh, infantry. And, uh, uh, and then he said, I didn't notice any vapor trails over Minsk. Minsk is where he was uh, when he was in the Soviet Union for most of his stay. Now... Garrison believes that Oswald's leftist activity in New Orleans and Dallas 
his attempts to insinuate himself into the confidence of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, uh, the Socialist Workers Party, the Communist Party USA, uh, was nothing more than an attempt to erect a facade. Such a facade would have given him uh, perhaps easier access to communist countries. It would have given him once in uh, a freer movement. Now, when Oswald went to the Soviet embassy, or pardon me, the Cuban embassy, in Mexico City, he very carefully listed all these uh, affiliations with these groups, which of course existed only in his own mind. Uh, he never was formally accepted into any of them. Now, uh, who was Oswald then if, if he was not really a leftist? Who was he? Well, uh, Garrison's evidence will show that Oswald was affiliated with a uh, group in New Orleans which uh, was anti-Castro in nature and was paramilitary in nature. It was composed of, uh, down in that area, there is a tremendous cross-pollinization of people who are members of the Minutemen, who are uh, Cuban exiles, uh, violently opposed to Castro, uh, who are even members of the KKK. And uh, it was with one of these factions with whom Oswald was traveling. Now, uh, with that in mind, uh, why, how does the CIA come into it? Because Garrison believes that uh, CIA is the one or the reason that uh, there is this orchestrated attack on him. Well, very simply, it was the CIA which sponsored these anti-Castro groups which were supposed to, even after the Bay of Pigs failure, uh, never relinquish their dreams of reinvading Cuba. And uh, as a matter of fact, these groups were very active in training in the, uh, in the environs of uh, New Orleans. Uh, Garrison found a, one of their bases where one of the founders of the Minutemen had been uh, arrested by the FBI and secretly let go. His name never appeared in the newspapers. Uh, these people uh, became very disenchanted with President Kennedy after uh, all what they called all his promises about uh, freeing Cuba and not coming through, and then his apparent rapprochement with uh, Cuba, which was in the works uh, at the time of the assassination, was being handled um, through the Cuban ambassador, Lachumba, in the United Nations, and uh, through an intermediary, um, a ABC newswoman who was on very close personal terms, Lisa Howard, very close personal terms with Castro. Uh, with so what Garrison believes is, is these anti-Castro groups, which had been nurtured by the CIA, one of the factions, a spinoff from this group, got out of hand, uh, set up Oswald as the patsy, and assassinated. Kennedy in, in Dealey Plaza. In, Dealey in other Plaza. words, he doesn't think that the CIA ordered, uh, ordered Kennedy's assassination, That's but simply a, that a group that had been involved, involved and financed the by the CIA right. uh, went its uh, own way. Uh, right. The CIA, by its very nature, is compartmentized or cellular, uh, like they used to talk about Communist Party cells and uh, how one didn't know the other. And this is exactly the structure of the CIA. And it's very easy for one of these cells, CIA cells, to um, becoming so involved in deceit, duplicity, assassination, murder, 
uh, to go off and, and do something like this. And the, the operation at Dealey Plaza had all the earmarks of a paramilitary type of ambush. There's no question about it. And Ferry and Shaw were involved in that group. Is that now the, the legal allegations against Shaw are that he uh, conspired. It's a conspiracy charge in New Orleans uh, with David Ferry and Oswald to assassinate the president. Uh, he, Garrison's legal bill of particulars states that. Uh, a, a session in which they discussed and planned an assassination uh, talk or particulars culminated in what happened at Dealey Plaza. And uh, uh, as I said before, however, uh, Garrison has gone no farther in his charges on Shaw. However, uh, he has independent evidence to, uh, to back up Shaw's identity as Clay Bertram, as you, as you may know, that is a big bone of contention. Shaw says he is not Clay Bertram. Uh, Garrison says he is. Now, Clay Bertram was, comes into it this way. Immediately after the assassination, a New Orleans attorney, Dean Andrews, who had handled uh, what he calls the gay swishers in New Orleans and also Oswald. Uh, Oswald apparently wanted his discharge changed, um, said that immediately after the assassination he received a phone call from this man whom he knew as Clay Bertram. And Clay Bertram was a man who had referred Oswald to his office. And he said that he, Bertram asked him if he would defend Oswald uh, against the assassination charges. Uh, of course, before anything further could be done, Oswald himself was killed. Now, as I say, it is part of Garrison's allegations that Clay Shaw is, in fact, the man using the name Clay Bertram, and this he intends to prove in court. Also, the facts of the conspiracy. Now, uh, one of the allegations in, in, uh, to prove this is that uh, Clay Shaw met in Baton Rouge with Jack Ruby and with Oswald. And he has witness that testifies to, that will testify to this. So this is the the case against Shaw, which, as I say, is up for. Uh, it has not yet been set on the calendar, but will come off late this year or early next. Does he have any uh, witnesses uh, who claim to be to have been a member of this group themselves? Or is this all inferential? Uh, well, do you know whether or not he any anyone within the uh, uh, the little uh, right wing uh, CIA whatever you want to call it type group that this plot took place in, according to him? Yeah. Uh, is there anyone who was a, a part of that that he has been able to uh, to get as a witness? Unfortunately, no, uh, because uh, obviously. Uh, these people would be accessories before the fact, at the very least, if not participants, uh, accessories after the fact. And certainly, uh, you talked about the mysterious deaths. <laughs> uh, these people would not be very prone to talk, knowing what the, the penalty might be. Well, but he must have found it out some way. Uh, you know, I wondered if by any chance it was a question of someone from the group informing even if uh, if for reasons it would be very obvious that well there have, there have been protected uh, let me put it this way then that there have been uh, people who have uh, been within the group 
or on the periphery of it who have been able to give him at least part of a story. No one has come... Well, that's what I was driving at. I wasn't expecting that anyone who had helped to plan the assassination of the president would come along and say, you know, I was a member of a conspiracy. Like like former Minutemen, for example. Yes, there have been a couple of those. Because, for example, as far as I know, it's never been absolutely proven that such a group existed and that Oswald was a member of it. Well, anybody who had ever been in that group would be a valuable witness to that. This is true, right. You see, there, and there that are, was, yeah. I was wondering what what the depth was on the on the witness situation. Yeah, there has no one been no one, unfortunately, who has been able to tell him that yes, uh, I was in this group. Yes, uh, I was part of the assassination team at Dealey Plaza. Yes, so and so and so and so shot from behind the grass. No, I understand fence. that, uh, yeah. uh, Bill. But the point yeah. is that sometimes you have a group that might be composed of, say, uh, you know, 10 or 15 people. And that doesn't mean that there wouldn't be a minority yeah. even within so small a group that was doing something. There, there, but at yeah. least that any one of those 15 people could testify. The people who m- belonged to this group and who normally came to our meetings were so-and-so, so-and-so. And if Oswald That's and right. Ferry and Shaw were three of them, then that much would be established. It was yeah. that kind kind of evidence. I right, Elsa. There have been a couple of cracks in this little structure. There have been. Well, that uh, uh, looks as if he's uh, gotten that far anyway. Yes, he has. Uh, and would this, uh, does he think this is involved, um, well, you mentioned the fact that there was Cuban participation in these uh, in these groups. Cuban exile. Yes. Yes, right. May I make a point about yes. this? Uh, very early in the uh, when the uh, whole case about Garrison's investigation broke, there were charges that um, pro-Castro Cubans had somehow been involved, and some of the press had picked up the story that uh, at first now, this Garrison... Is pro-Castro Cubans. This is pro-Castro yes, Cubans. this is the was he right, was he left. Right. Mm-hmm. That pro-Castro elements were involved in the assassination, and, and the press uh, allegedly stated, or stated that uh, allegedly Garrison had... Uh, actually conceived of as this of this is possibly one of the elements in the conspiracy um, I'm talking about certain sections of the press the fact is that at no time was this a possibility when uh, Garrison launched his investigation in fact uh, through all the uh, investigations that he has conducted uh, there's one thing that does stand out and that is that Oswald who does play, of course, an important uh, role in this whole case, all his associations during his entire uh, trip, both through New Orleans and Dallas, were with um, elements that can be considered paramilitary right-wing groups, and that all his associations were primarily of a right-wing extremist nature. There is no evidence to show that he was, as the press had identified him, as a leftist. This well, was I guess it did come out that he had made approaches to uh, certain left-wing groups, but I remember that within days, or at least very shortly after the assassination, uh, that there wasn't uh, also a news item about the fact that at one time he had volunteered to train people to go in on the Bay of Pigs invasion. In other words... The com- a completely contrary story. Now, that hit the press sometime very quickly after the assassination and then died. I never saw anything more about that, but I clearly remember this because it made a great deal more sense uh, in the context of, of what one knew about Oswald 
you know, uh, than, than the other story. And, and so I do remember it. Yes, uh, I think what you're referring to is an incident when Oswald had approached a anti-Castro uh, refugee by the name of Carlos Bringuer in New Orleans. And apparently this, it's my belief, that when Oswald had done this, he had blown his cover, so to speak, about his uh, connections with the CIA at this particular point, because Bringuer had become immediately suspicious of Oswald that he was a double agent. Now, uh, while he was in New Orleans, Oswald managed to get himself a lot of publicity, and I don't think this was quite undeliberate. I think this was on the part of an expected cover that he was expected to assume. Uh, he got on a program on radio, WDSU, in which he debated a person who was connected with a group called INCA, which was the Information Council of America. Now, this group was connected with right-wing uh, anti-Castro um, refugees and had extensive operations uh, in connection with Latin American uh, revolutions. Now, the thing about this Inca group is that uh, a number of individuals who are connected with this particular group, one of them, for example, is a man by the name of Mario Bermudez, who is the man who helped arrange the trip for Clay Shaw when he was here in San Francisco. Now, if you recall, uh, one of the things that uh, Perry Raymond Russo had said in his testimony before the grand jury was that part of the plot that was to be executed on the day of November 22nd when President Kennedy was killed, part of this plot would have to have the principles of the case in other cities at the time so that no suspicion would be drawn upon them. And I'm just curious to see that this man, Bermudez, is arranging a trip for Clay Shaw, the man who has now been charged with conspiring to kill the president. And here is this group, Inca, which manages to arrange this particular debate with Oswald while he's in New Orleans. With Oswald taking a view uh, contrary at that point to the right-wing view. Well, he, on this program, he took a view that he was a leftist who identified yes, with the Castro Revolution. I mean. Yes, quite. Uh, but there was, I do distinctly remember the, uh, uh, seeing the item that uh, he had, uh, in spite of the fact that he was supposed to be on this, uh, you know, Friends of Cuba, you know, the, the what was the name of the committee, you know? Fair Play for Cuba. Fair Play for yeah. Cuba, and, and so on, uh, that, um, that he also had been in, uh, had volunteered at one time to train people to go in uh, on the Bay of Pigs invasion, uh, Cuban exiles. Uh, this which is would probably be, uh, the uh, Carlos Brunier episode because he appeared voluntarily at Brunier's office. Brunier was uh, probably one of the best known of the anti-Castro exiles down there. And he, as a sign of good faith, he presented Brunier with his Marine Corps drill manual or field manual. Uh, and Brunier felt that he couldn't be trusted and maybe it was a plant and had nothing more to do with them, although that little altercation where Brunier, uh, when Oswald was out in front of the International Trade Mart uh, with his fair play for Cuba handbills, and Brunier comes up in his little altercation, and Oswald said, well, uh, go ahead, hit me if you want, Carlos. You know, it, it almost was, it sounds like it was staged uh, that, uh, that Oswald really was trying to say, well, look, I'm on your side. And uh, all the evidence points that way. Well, everything that one has ever read uh, would uh, 
give one the impression, certainly, that Oswald, uh, whether by design and whether on behalf of just himself or other people, was certainly playing both sides of the street. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, it, so you <laughs> therefore have your choice as to right. which side of the street he was really in the pay of. Well, when you, like, uh, why would Oswald be associating with a guy like Jack Ruby? And Garrison has abundant evidence to show that he was. Uh, why would he be associating with a man like that who really is apolitical, uh, on the surface at least? Uh, this isn't somebody that Oswald would just pick up and associate with uh, because he really didn't like nightlife that much to go to the Carousel Club. Well, what role does Garrison figure Ruby did play in it? Uh, Garrison feels that uh, that Ruby was manipulated in this thing, probably by the Dallas police. Now, I don't, I, Dallas police is too general. Uh, probably by key people within the Dallas police. And uh, that, uh, for example... Uh, Hal mentioned uh, Jim Phelan's article in the Saturday Evening Post, which made Garrison look a little ridiculous. And one of the means of ridicule that, uh, that Phelan used in this was to quote Garrison as that you have to look at this in the looking glass almost like a Lewis Carroll, you know, and this was a source of great hilarity. But it's really true. You do have to look at certain aspects of it in the looking glass. You have to look at Oswald in the looking glass. You have to look at Ruby. Uh, his facade was that he would go around in the time between the assassination and his own killing of Oswald, and he'd go down to the box, the postal box, and where uh, Weiss, Weissman's answers to his advertisement, the black-bordered ad wanted for treason, President Kennedy, was coming in and said, oh, isn't that awful, and draw attention to himself there. He would go out in the middle of the night and call up one of his employees, Larry Crayford, at the club and go out and photograph the billboard that says impeach or a war. Isn't that awful? And these tender remarks about uh, Jacqueline Kennedy and sparing her the ordeal. Well, uh, in other words, this was a, an attempt to draw attention to the fact that he was really very pro-Kennedy and very incensed uh, that anybody would kill Kennedy, and, and therefore it creates a certain illusion, and that's what Garrison means by the looking glass. Yes, I can see that. But where does he think Ruby really was? Does he think that Ruby was a part of uh, of this conspiracy? And uh, oh, certainly. And it's obvious that yeah. whoever that if there were uh, a conspiracy, that Mr. Oswald was very definitely the patsy. Yeah. Uh, well, for example, whatever he expected to be—that's what he—that's what he was. Yeah, I'll, I'll illustrate by one of the statement of one witness, a sworn statement in Garrison's files. I, I shan't name the man, but it really doesn't make any difference. Uh, he's evaluated as probably a reliable witness. This man was a, um, a an artist, sort of a transient artist. He'd go from town to town. Uh, he got a little bit on the shorts in Dallas, and he went into the Dallas. Or no, he he went up to um, this H. L. Hunt's son's uh, business office and asked, you know, if he could give him a little dough or something. And H. L. Hunt's son said, "Well, I I don't give out any. You go down to the Dallas Police Department, give them your social security number, and they'll take care of you." Uh, this man said he went down there. Uh, he gave his social security number. The officer fixed him up with a some kind of a chit that would get him a full tank of gas, and he was given a little pocket money. And he said at that point, Jack Ruby came up and uh, said, well, maybe I can get you at least a temporary job. And uh, he said that Ruby gave him a certain amount of money, a nominal sum. 
and said, now you go down to Alexandria, Louisiana, and check in the Bentley Hotel there, and somebody will contact you further. Now, this man and his wife uh, cooperates this. They went, and the hotel records cooperate. They went to the Bentley Hotel. Uh, at least they cooperate that they checked in there. Fine. Uh, his story is that uh, he was no sooner in there than he was contacted by a man. His phone rang, come down to the lobby, and it was Oswald. And Oswald... Uh, conferred with him and, and made a what at the time he considered a very cryptic statement uh, to the effect that uh, very soon uh, some Catholic leaders will be killed, which in terms, you know... Uh, well, what gets, did Oswald say he was supposed to do or anything? What did they confer He said about? he'd be contacted further. You know, just he was just cooperating or confirming that he'd arrived, and then there was no further contact, and after a few days this guy left. Now, the whole annals of this thing is, is filled with these kind of fits and starts. Uh, they seemed, But there was another incident, uh, a man by the name of Donald Norton, who claims that he is a former CIA uh, unpeople, uh, who worked for CIA on certain assignments, um, said, number one, that at one time he was sent to Atlanta and that he met a man at the Atlanta airport who gave him, he was a courier, uh, Norton was a courier. He was to deliver this amount of money to Havana, and uh, this was in '58 before Castro got to power. And that the man uh, who gave him the money was an Eastern Airlines pilot named uh, Hugh Ferris. Well, he later identifies Hugh Ferris as being Dave Ferry, and Ferry was indeed an Eastern Airlines pilot. Uh, he also said he was on another courier assignment to Monterey, Mexico, and that in the course of this assignment, he delivered money to uh, Oswald, a man he now identifies as Lee Oswald. This was in September of 62, and then took documents from Oswald, he doesn't know what they were, and delivered them to Calgary, Alberta, Canada, where a man gave him the password. It's a fine day in Tulsa, and um, he was an oil firm employee, and he delivered the documents to him. He got paid by the assignment. He said he got $5,000 for that assignment. Now, Again, this man has been subjected. You think it all happens on TV, but I guess it, well, it I, I can guarantee I mean, it's just beyond <laughs> that this thing is almost surrealistic at times. I feel it, it it's too James Bondish to be true, but the facts are there, and uh, it really is uh, is the way it's turning out. <laughs> and he feels then that all of this, um, or at least a good deal of it, can be brought to light. Uh, during the trial of this guy Shaw, if he can get no, it. he he doesn't. He uh, Garrison has made a statement. He said, "I just hope the American people don't think that the Shaw trial is going to bring out everything, because he's we naturally we can only introduce what is material and relevant." And as he said, Shaw is not at the center of this at all. Shaw is off to the side somewhere. Ergo, he won't be able to tell the whole story at this trial. And um, I know that he has a couple of other arrests in mind, but uh, this, of course, uh, as I say, he, he is so freighted now with the Shaw trial and with uh, this attack against him that uh, he just has to clear the decks. And he wants to get the Shaw trial over with before he starts he's on what he considers to be the next step. In, yeah, in he's, he's made a motion there. in open court. And again... Uh, this uh, the attempt to um, to abort the Shaw trial is, is very evident. And again, uh, Shaw himself seems to have CIA connections. Now the foreign press has reported this, 
I have not read word one about it in the domestic press. But uh, in 1958, Shaw was on the board of directors of a Rome corporation called the World Trade Center. Now, he, through his attorney, Shaw, through his attorney, admits he was on this board of directors. Uh, he said, however, he was merely asked to be on it by his own board of directors at the International Trade Mart. Now, on his board of directors uh, are some very uh, strange people. Uh, one of them is the secretary of the Italian neo-fascist party. Another is a son-in-law of Nazi finance minister Halmer Schacht. Another is uh, a fellow uh, who is now an executive of the Bank of Montreal, and, and he's a former OSS major by the name of L.M. Bloomfield. Uh, uh, this group was uh, kicked out of Italy, the World Trade Center, because although it seemed to have uh, plenty of money, it never did any ostensible business, and they suspected the Italian police that it was a CIA front. It is now headquartered in Johannesburg, South Africa, under the same name, which is probably a more friendly climate. It also had a subsidiary corporation in Switzerland, which likewise was ousted by the Swiss police because it was suspected of being a conduit for funds for the OAS movement, the Algerie Francaise movement in Algeria. Uh, so I must say that uh, uh, if Mr. Shaw can explain this in terms of his just innocently being asked to go on the board, I will have to say then that the, that the entire board of directors of the International Trade Mart in, New, Mart in New Orleans are either extremely naive or involved with the CIA. Uh, yes, Al. May I just make this point? Uh, Bill has brought up an interesting point, and that is the further, the deeper you get in, involved in this, the more the connections you see, not only with respect to uh, quasi-legal and also secret groups such as the CIA and other uh, operations, but you can see this, this involves the connections um, of people who are more or less in a position where they can... Uh, use people for certain ends. Now, for example, uh, Clay Shaw, it will say, is in a position as director of the International Trade Mart to oversee operations of the second largest seaport in this country. Now, even Gordon Novell, who is one of the witnesses that Garrison is seeking to extradite from another state, and in fact has had very little success, which uh, Bill has mentioned that um, there have been obstructions. One of the things he's had difficulty in is in getting people extradited from different states. There are three states now that have refused to extradite material witnesses in this case. Anyway, Gordon Novell, who is a very interesting character in this whole case, uh, who also has admitted publicly that he has CIA connections, is reported to have said that Clay Shaw himself probably was connected with the CIA. So um, what I'm trying to make here is that you can understand why, then, the Shaw trial would be um, blocked from coming um, into court because the connections that are involved here go very deep within the government, as I see it. And that's, uh, this is my belief why that trial is being obstructed, not only insofar as uh, Shaw's involvement in the assassination, I think it has a lot to do with uh, connections that the government has set up. Now, uh, I would think that Mr. Garrison's life 
was not worth much on the open market if he uh, proceeds with this. Uh, does he uh, travel with a bodyguard? Does he feel uh, secure? Uh, and uh, what motivates this man? Now, you've met him, you've talked to him. Uh, what's he in this for? Uh, you know, you hear the crack, well, it's a lot of cheap publicity, he, hasn't got, he can't prove anything, uh, but it's put him on the front pages of all papers and all this kind of thing. I would uh, suspect that it was also liable to put him in his coffin. Well, uh, I believe that uh, this could be the case, Elsa. When I first went down to New Orleans after his case broke, uh, I really had some reservations about what a Southern prosecuting attorney was going to be like and uh, what his motives might be. And it did seem a little unlikely, the whole thing, when it first it began to break. It did seem a little unlikely. Uh, I have now come to the conclusion that Jim Garrison is an unusual man in an unusual place at an unusual time. Now, the allegations have been bandied around uh, that he got into this thing for political ends. And I can only say that uh, if, if this was his motivation, uh, that he is extremely ignorant of how politicians get elected. So I should think it would indicate rather bad judgment. Extremely bad judgment. Now... <laughs> As I say, I was prepared to meet a, you know, a, a Southern prosecuting attorney. I had a stereotype in my mind, which is always bad, but I did. And I ran into a, to a man um, who was unusual in any region of the country. Um, Garrison was at Dachau, and I think this made an indelible impression on him. Now, before the, uh, he, he's, he's also extremely well. What do you well mean he was at Dachau? With the Allied armies uh, when they came upon Dachau. When they went yeah, Dachau. I'm sorry, I should have uh, yeah. elucidated a bit on that. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, the, the residual site there just indelibly impressed him because when he wrote an introduction to a, a very well uh, accepted criminology book, uh, before this whole investigation came up. Now, I understand that his, the very fact that he was asked to write this introduction is somewhat of an honor, that he, before this he was well known in, in uh, criminology circles. Uh, uh, it is a very sensitive and uh, historically based introduction. And he goes back to Dachau and the apathy of the German people that permitted this to happen, and he draws a parallel with the Kitty Genovese case in New York, where 36 people watched in their windows as this girl yeah, was slow, yeah. slowly killed. And uh, he talks about this lack of commitment and lack of involvement. And uh, maybe I could just read the, the tail end of this allegory that he brings up at the end of his introduction. And he's talking about some extraterrestrial being who happens upon our self-destroyed Earth at some future date. And... Uh, and happens upon this human skull, and, and the uh, here's what Garrison writes in his allegory. He puts the words in the mouth of this being. Alas, poor man, a fellow of most infinite jest, of most excellent fancy. Where are your gibbets now, your thumbscrews and your gallows, your treasured hates and your cruelties? What happened to your disinterested millions, your uncommitted and uninvolved, your preoccupied and bored? Where today are their private horizons and their mirrored worlds of self? Where is their splendid indifference now? Now, this, this is Garrison, really, when you talk to the man. We were both in the FBI, and he asked me about 
uh, a particular weapon that's in a photograph. And I said, I don't know what it is, Jim. Uh, as a matter of fact, I don't like guns. And he says, isn't that funny? He said, I don't either. Um, so he's, he's a rather unusual uh, prosecutor, and uh, he's an extremely sensitive man. He told me, you know, a year ago before this whole thing started, he said, I was vis-a-vis uh, -vis Vietnam. I was what you might call a mild hawk. He said, I'm, I'm really a dove now. He, he said, uh, this whole thing has changed my thinking. Now, if this is a fool or a knave or a political opportunist, uh, so be it, but I just don't believe it. And I think that the press has portrayed him in this light, and they have portrayed him in this light in a very calculated manner. And I, I think that we have a, a very definite um, problem here in New Orleans. Uh, as Garrison puts it, I am probably the only prosecutor, not defendant, that has been convicted in the press prior to the trial. And if they can silence Garrison, and when I say they, I mean the orchestrated attack from obviously from Washington, obviously involving the mass media, if they can silence Garrison, I'm afraid they'll be able to silence anyone. If they can uh, portray him in an unfair light, I think they can do it to anyone. And I think that there's over and above or maybe uh, parallel to the issue of who killed Kennedy, there is this issue of the press in the United States. And it's completely uh, slanted coverage of what is going on down there. Is there anything else you would like to say about uh, what you envisage as the future progress of this before we close the interview? Well, either of you, yeah. <laughs> or both of you. Well, I, I think that the uh, that as I say every day, uh, there seems to be a new development in Garrison's case. Not not that it makes the papers, but internally. Uh, I have seen his evidence, uh, practically all of it at any rate, because I've, uh, uh, having researched the Minutemen a year and a half ago, and the Minutemen being involved in this thing, uh, I, I would suppose that uh, much of the information I have is valuable to his investigation. Uh, I would say that he has a very excellent case. Uh, I, it gets better every day. And... Uh, if, as we both stated, that if we were back in the FBI and we could uh, had 6,000 agents around the country and we could get on that teletype and market urgent and send out these leads that this assassination conspiracy would be solved inside of three weeks and the conspirators would be in jail. But uh, as I've um, outlined to you, Garrison has very limited jurisdiction, only within the parish of Orleans. Uh, he has encountered all kinds of obstructionist tactics from the FBI, uh, from the national press, from the governors of the various states, uh, from people within his own bailiwick, uh, even from um, an infiltrator in his own organization, uh, which CBS gave national coverage to, and uh, CBS is, has yet to report that, uh, that um, Dean Andrews has been convicted of perjury. So, uh, I, Dean I would, Andrews, I take it, was the man you refer to as having Dean, infiltrated the garrison? Uh, no, uh, William Gervich is the one who infiltrated down there and then uh, went on and made some very anti-garrison statements uh, and saying that the man was... Uh, didn't have a case, and this CBS interrupted its four-part series to put Gervich on. 
but they didn't interrupt their series the next night to report that Gervich had been allowed to testify as to what factual material he had before the grand jury in New Orleans, and the grand jury decided that he didn't have any facts. They didn't interrupt their program for that. Well, what about the man who was convicted of perjury, because I don't know who he is. Uh, Dean Andrews is the attorney in New Orleans who uh, uh, I originally told you that uh, Clay Shaw is alleged to be Clay Bertram. Dean Andrews is the attorney uh, whom uh, Bertram referred Oswald to him. I see. And uh, he's the one that got the phone call the day after the assassination from Clay Bertram to defend Oswald. And uh, at, and did he at, perjure himself about this? Was yes, it was about this. He was very, uh, no, with no qualifications at all, he told the Warren Commission that he could positively identify this Clay Bertram, and if he ever got his hands on him, he'd, he'd drag him right in. So he's, uh, at, he's hauled uh, before a, uh, some kind of a hearing down there to, to um, see whether he can identify Clay Shaw or not as Clay Bertram. And he says, I just, you know, I wouldn't be able to identify anyone uh, as whether it was uh, Clay Bertram or not. He completely changed his story. And when Mark Lane tried to interview him, uh, well, this was two years ago why... Uh, first he said, yes, fine, come on up. By the time uh, Mark Lane got to his office, why uh, he said, uh, gosh, I'm sorry, I can't discuss anything about it. I've called Washington, and uh, they have, in effect, told me that if uh, I say anything, I'll get a hole in my head. So he said, I'll take you to dinner, though. So uh, th this is a kind of thing that, that constantly comes up, this intimidation of witnesses, this... Uh, trying to either bribe them or or lure them uh, to tell a different story. Yes, Hal. Yes, uh, Bill mentioned uh, Bill Gervich. Um, I want to show the very subtle ways in which the press can uh, distort the picture. Um, CBS had presented Bill Gervich, and in fact the press uh, throughout the country had presented Bill Gervich as Garrison's chief investigator. Now the fact is that Gervich was never the chief investigator, as a matter of fact, if I'm not correct, Bill, isn't the assistant ranking district attorney the chief investigator? For yeah, uh, Hal, uh, Garrison's office doesn't really have a pecking order there, but uh, Charles Ward is the uh, assistant district, uh, senior district, uh, but they have a man, a detective posted from the New Orleans Police Department who really is the chief investigator. His Ivan. name is Louis right. Ivan. That's correct. And he succeeded a man by the name of Pershing Gervais when Gervais resigned uh, oh, a year or two ago. Right. Now, um, CBS, in presenting this, didn't present, you know, Gervais' real relationship to this uh, Garrison investigation. He wasn't on the payroll. He had volunteered his information or his services. And uh, this, of course, did not come out in the CBS uh, interview. Another curious and interesting thing about this is the timing of Gervich's resignation or, um, uh, you know, uh, declining to associate himself any further with this investigation. When did this occur? This occurred at the end of June uh, of this year, 1967, when at the very time the Associated Press and CBS and NBC were all coming out with their programs. I don't think that this timing is uh, just accidental. I think, in my own view, I think this was a deliberate timing to sort of uh, create the impression that Garrison uh, was a totally discredited figure and that he was um, 
that his investigation had no validity to it. Welcome back. And uh, that was an interview. We're an archival interview uh, with uh, William Turner, uh, who um, part of the Jim Garrison investigation into the conspiracy uh, surrounding the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, that interview was from uh, 1967. That's going to conclude our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, December 3rd, uh, 2023. Uh, we've been broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. And if you'd like to have uh, access uh, to uh, this program, all you need to do is go uh, to our website, and that's at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to uh, have access to the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out with the music of Lil Green. And, of course, this is a selection of her tunes uh, from uh, the 20th century. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
Now tell me, babe, please tell me, what have I done? You going to be sorry you treated me this way? You gonna warn me, babe, I'll be far away. Now tell me, babe, please tell me, what have I The louder the sky, what's the matter with love? 
a long time to get you to change your mind now love me Walking 